can hear me. I think you could have heard me either way, but the people out there in the virtual world couldn't, so we have to be, have to be electronic and such. Okay, we're going to finish chapter 5 today. The heavenly scene, I just noticed that this is part 7 of the heavenly scene, which is just a... <laughs> It's kind of embarrassing, but that's just the way it is. I was just talking to Pastor Kevin about this, um, and um, I think it's okay simply because this is such an important section of Scripture. I'll talk about that here in just a moment, but I think it's okay that we've kind of slowed down in this spot. There'll be places where we don't do that, and I think this is one that had to have that happen because if we think about this and we look at the whole of Scripture, you're not going to find too many passages better than what we've seen in chapter 4 and 5 about pointing everything to our God. You're not going to find Scriptures as rich as this, melding together the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and how they are one and worthy of praise than this chapter 4 and chapter 5. So it's good that we've spent some time on it, but today we are going to get through it. And hopefully it will set us up well for chapter 6. Before we do all of that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you and glorify your name. You are worthy of those things. And we thank you for your scripture, how rich it is. As Pastor Kevin and I were just talking about this, that it's been uh, such a blessing to see your word uh, and how it impacts us. And it always does. We thank you that we have that in hour one and hour number two. I've enjoyed seeing how you have used your word to allow us to see the person of Christ and his, his desire and his love for his apostles, his disciples, and then subsequently us. And what had to happen, his death on that Roman cross, that had to happen in order for our one to happen. Without that happening, we know your plan was always in place in order for all things to be made new. There first had to be a sacrifice. We thank you for that. That's your word. That's not Pastor James or, pa- or myself or Pastor Kevin. That's you and it's your word. So we praise your name for that and how perfect it is and how it blesses us. Help us today as we work through your word that we can see that today as well and understand what you'd like us to see in this scripture today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as I just prayed and I just mentioned, we are, you can turn to Revelation chapter 5. We are at what most commentators call the apex of scripture because this is the tipping point. This is the tipping point. As pastor was walking up here and I was writing the word apex. Um, This is where things, this is where things have to culminate. And without this moment and without the Lamb, the the Creator, the Redeemer being deemed worthy and being able to take that scroll, the rest of this chapter, the rest of this book does not happen. And the curse is not fully reversed. And we we look at this particular passage as one that is um, pretty incredible as we consider what's about to happen in human history in chapter 6. This is pretty incredible when we consider it. So you should be in Revelation chapter 5. And just as a reminder, last week, you'll notice what my theme is this week, power, honor, and glory. Might could be added to that. That's taken from our final verses today. Last week, if you recall, it was just one one right response, worship. 
I almost left that simply because it's a continuation of last week. As you know, I broke up the chapter and I broke up this section. It's still the proper response. He's still worthy. And our reaction, and we'll continue to see the reaction of both the elders representing the church, these living creatures, some sort of angelic beings, and then other angels responding, and it's still going to be worship. But as we look at this text, just as a reminder, I think it's important, again, and I know we've read it already through, but I don't think anybody minds, we're going to read it one more time, just to continue to understand the full context of it. It's good to slow down in this, but it's also, it hampers us a little bit if we don't read it in context. So I think that's a good thing to do once again. Starting at verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Remember, this is about worship, and it's focused on the Lamb and the Creator, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That's as far as we got. And they sang a new song. I think we got to this too. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And this is where we'll pick up today. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. So you can see why still just the one proper response, just the one right response. And so as we look at this text and we go back to where we ended last week, this is where we are. They sang this new song. We discussed that. And what's new about that is not that it's a a new concept to the Lord. It's always been his plan. But we have this beautiful scenario here where we see in retrospect singing about what what pastor's about to approach, what, he's, he had, what Jesus had been preparing his apostles for in the upper room and honestly throughout his whole ministry, what he was going to do, which was to be slain. And then that by that blood, we are ransomed, redeemed, and paid for, paid in full, as we discussed last week. And that's for people from all over planet Earth, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles. Where we're picking it up here, it's pretty a pretty crazy concept. This is all about Jesus, and I think we can all agree with that, right? This is all about him, and it's all about his glory. And then look at what he does. And it reminds me, by the way, of a quote Pastor had last week in his, uh, in his sermon. And I'll misquote it, but I'll generally say, he said something to the effect of, on your worst day, on your worst day, Jesus' love for you hasn't changed. Am I close on that, Pastor? Did that catch you when he said, that was a great line, that's a great line. That is true, (laughs) this is true. And I don't think I've had my worst day yet. I'm probably going to top myself uh, of my fallen nature. But why, what a reassurance that this is all about him. And and then look at this, you've made them, speaking of not just the, the church here, but there's going to be resurrected saints at the end of the tribulation too, we'll get to that in a moment. It says, then he's made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This isn't about us, and yet, look at what he does. Look look at what our God does. 
Look at the love that he has for us. Talking about him dying for us, ransoming us, and letting us reign with him as kingdom, in his kingdom. This is a crazy concept. That's the sort of love that our Savior has for us. It's amazing. You almost can't get past it. This should not have anything to do with us. In your gut and in your heart, you know it's not. And yet, that is our Savior's love for us. It's incredible. It's an incredible thing to consider. So let's just for a moment come back to this concept of a kingdom and priests that shall reign on the earth. Now, you can imagine how long it's going to be before I get to the kingdom, okay? So, you know, (laughs) we've only just begun, and we're going to break this up a little bit. It's going to be a while. So for just a moment, we're going to talk about this concept of a kingdom. There are two levels to this, really, that we'll look at today. To come back around to this to really confuse you, I've brought back this chart just so that you have an understanding of what we're dealing with here. We haven't gotten very far. Okay, We're in the church age here. We're waiting for the rapture. At some point, the rapture will take place, and we will be in this heavenly scene Okay, up here, an incredible thing. What's going to happen at some point after the rapture, the Antichrist, as we will address this next week, will rise to power. And he will do this in a very peaceful way at first. The way he conquers at first will not seem malicious in any way. It will be, but it won't seem that way. And that will initiate this 70th week of Daniel as we will study next week. This will take us into this tribulation period, seven years. First three and a half, and then the second three and a half. And then it culminates with the Battle of Armageddon. Now, The reason I'm bringing all of this up is because I'm going to reference the kingdom here today, and we haven't haven't studied it, and we won't for quite a while. This kingdom era is 1,000 years. We only get that from Revelation. However, the details of the kingdom are, are really found in the Old Testament, and in the minor prophets specifically. We'll see a lot of detail. We're going to get to that. It's going to be a while. Uh, but the thousand years is given to us in, in Revelation alone. It is during this era that this quote that we, just from, that we just took from Revelation 5 is referencing. This kingdom and reigning in this era. Now, just to kind of give you an understanding of this, this is after the seven-year tribulation. And we're jumping ahead a little bit, but it's, I think it's important. Let me get to a more simple. This is the one my dad faxed to me, remember, in the late 90s? Makes me think of my dad. Um, But at any rate, this is this kingdom age here. There will be people who have survived the tribulation, who had put their faith in Christ during the tribulation period that are ushered into the kingdom as regular human beings, believers in Jesus. As a matter of fact, anyone who's in the kingdom at this point as a physical, unresurrected, unglorified human has put their faith in Christ during the tribulation period. Most of the Jews, if not all by some, by some arguments, and many Gentiles will have put their faith in Christ and only they will make it into the kingdom as regular human beings. They will live their lives with sin natures. Now their lives will be a little different and the extension of their life will be a little different. They will have children just like we do. This is not us, by the way. If you're in Christ, this is not you. You will be glorified at this point in heaven with the Lord during this tribulation period, coming back with him at the Battle of Armageddon when he culminates this kingdom, and you will reign with him, as we'll talk about today, just very briefly. But there will be humans on earth during this time that are having children, and their children 
will have to put their faith in Christ. And many of them will not. And, and that, that begs the question, how could that happen? And I'll ha- I have a very easy answer for you. Jesus was here once before, performing miracles and doing the things that the Bible predicted he would do. And doing it perfectly, by the way, with perfect love, perfect grace, perfect mercy, perfect kindness, perfect power, perfect words. And people rejected him outright. His own people rejected him outright. Now, when Jesus returns, we're going to see here today even, the way he reigns in this kingdom is a rod of iron. And people don't like that kind of reign. They just don't. Because they still have a sin nature, and they still want to sin, and they want to do what they want to do, and there will be many who rebel. During this time is when we will reign with Christ. Okay, so that there is a, I'm going to show you here, there is a not quite yet, and then future, sort of right now, and then future. You'll see that in the texts today, but that's what we're dealing with. I hated to take too much time to jump ahead, but in case you were confused, this is confusing. There is going to be a literal kingdom on earth, and it's important to note that. Okay, all that's our setup for this, and it took me a while, but let's hustle through this. So as we go through this, first of all, we've already addressed this. I just want to briefly bring you back to a text that I I was in a couple weeks ago, just to remind you. It says a priesthood and a kingdom. This is that key text that we looked at a few weeks ago. Jesus doing this, this is, notice the the language here, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. He did this, a holy nation, people for his own possession. This points right back to Christ. But notice this, this is, I just didn't want to skip it, even though we've covered it. Notice what we're supposed to do as priests, as a chosen race, as a holy nation. We proclaim the excellencies of him. That's what we do until he comes. We've seen that in many texts already. But that's our job as we proclaim his excellencies. I think that this lesson, these lessons, this study has helped, to, helped us to get a broader view of his excellencies, hasn't it? If there's one thing that we've taken from this study and these two chapters that we've covered so far is just how excellent our Savior is. So we can proclaim it even better now thanks to his text his word, of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that's our priesthood angle, and we've covered that already, so I didn't want to spend too much time on that. But then he talks about this kingdom and that we're part of this kingdom. And I I bring this up, I mentioned earlier, already and not just yet. If we go back to one of our key passages about salvation, and we look at just the middle portion of this, Ephesians 2. The Ephesians 2 passage is the one you should know from top to bottom, by the way, as a believer. To proclaim his excellencies, the most excellent thing about him, from your perspective and mine, is that he saved you when you didn't deserve it. That's that's excellent. From a sinner's perspective, that's excellent. And remember, if we look at Ephesians 2, we look at 1 through 3, you were doomed. You were in trouble, and so was I. But of course, verse 4 is is one of those incredible startings of a passage, but God being rich in mercy, right? The way he loved us, what we've been talking about, back to pastor's quote from last week. But notice, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, chose us, made us, did this, just like we see with uh, the first Peter passage, by grace you've been saved, raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus right now. So right now, you have victory. You are more than conquerors, as we've discussed. That 
Your sin is, is as far as the east is from the west. It, it's buried. Your, 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 your crimson red sin is now white as snow. That's all true. That's all true. But notice there's more coming, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I think that's an allusion to what we're looking at here. It's true now, but it will be even more true in the future. So there's a spiritual element to this, a spiritual kingdom. Now, there's a physical kingdom, as I've just discussed, and we'll discuss both of, both of them, but there is a spiritual element to this as well. Luke 17 is one of the classic passages that people tend to use to say that there's no real physical kingdom. I think that it's saying both. Okay? And here's, here's what this scenario is. This, is. this is kind of one of these interesting things. The Pharisees are questioning him about the kingdom. The Jews know from the Old Testament there's a real kingdom coming. As I mentioned, most of our text about what that kingdom is like is from the Old Testament, and they knew it. And they were questioning Christ about this, and here's what Christ's response is. And people can take this out of context, as I mentioned. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, a real physical kingdom, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, there's two ways to look at this. There's some commentators who will take this and say, well, it's Jesus, he's the king, and he's in your midst. True, (laughs) that's true. Right? There's no kingdom without the king. And there's no kingdom without the king that conquered. And there's no king without the, the king that did what we've already covered, that was slain and ransomed us. That's one angle, and that's true. But what the text really drives is that it's within the believer. Okay, So if you look at that con- the con- contextually and, and the language of that, that's also true, that it's within the believer. That the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer can live a Christ-centered life, now a holy life. We're a holy nation, a priesthood. We're declaring his excellencies. So there's an element of the kingdom that we are working in right now. It's not the physical kingdom, but it's part of that. So notice we have other defenses of this. Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So there's an element of, of living in this kingdom world that we now are part of, thanks to the Lord, And living that out now, not perfectly, of course, but living that out now. In Christ's famous interaction with Pilate, what does he say here? He's he's questioning, are you the king? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So entrance into this kingdom, what his kingdom is about is about his truth. The truth, of course, is his word, and of course the word contains the gospel. That's the entrance to the kingdom. MacArthur has a very good take on this from his commentary, and he says this about this statement, and that helps tie things together for us here. By this phrase that we just looked at, from John, Jesus meant that his kingdom is not connected to earthly, political, and national entities, nor does it have its origin in the evil world system that is in rebellion against God. That's what we're dealing with here in Revelation too, isn't it? That title deed, that evil world that we live in, the God of this world is allowed to have authority for a moment. It doesn't come from that. His kingdom doesn't come from those efforts. 
If his kingdom was of this world, he would have fought. The kingship of this world preserved themselves by fighting with force. Messiah's kingdom does not originate in the efforts of man, but with the Son of Man forcefully, decisively conquering sin in the lives of his people. That's, that's part one, right? That we have to have before we reign with Christ, before his kingdom come. The biggest issue is the sin issue, right? That's our biggest problem. So stay with me here. In the lives of his people and someday conquering the evil world system at his second coming when he establishes the earthly form of his kingdom. Okay, so there's two. There is a spiritual element to this and then there's a physical element to this. His kingdom was no threat to the national identity of Israel nor the political and military identity of Rome. That's what he was talking about here. He wasn't going to overthrow Rome. That's what the Jews wanted him to do. It's what his apostles wanted him to do. It's, it's what we want him to do. We want him to establish his kingdom right now, right here, on our timing, don't we? And, and I get that. I understand. I'm in that same boat. We desire for But it's his timing and in his way and when he decides in his sovereignty that he's going to do that. It exists in the spiritual dimension until the end of the age. So that's true. Okay, so there's an element to it now that we live holy lives. We are represent, we're declaring his excellency until he comes. Then the physical kingdom. The physical kingdom, as I already established, is a real kingdom. Turn to Acts chapter 1 with me. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And there's a little bit of teaching going on here, I realize, that I'm kind of working through so that we all have that same understanding. There is a spiritual element, there is a physical element, and here's a perfect example of this. I think it's really good to see it in context, too, because remember, setting here in Acts chapter 1, Christ has resurrected. Forty days, it's going to kind of give us an idea of what's going on in those 40 days of Christ in his resurrected, glorified form, speaking with his apostles, showing up and showing himself to people, 500 at one time, individuals, his apostles. But it says that, it tells us what he's talking about. And, and, and some of these interactions with his apostles. So chapter 1, verse 1 of Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Notice what it says. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about what? The kingdom of God. Now, was he speaking about the spiritual element of it? Possibly. Possibly, I think so, but we're going to see based on the text that it's more than that. It's more than that. Look at this. And what, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, referencing the, the coming of the Holy Spirit at, at Pentecost. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you, take you, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay. Forty days, Jesus has been teaching them about the kingdom. If all he said in those 40 days was, it's just spiritual, guys. It's just spiritual. Forty days. Over a month, it's just spiritual. They wouldn't be asking him, hey, are you, are you going to establish your kingdom? We got the spiritual part. That's cool. But what about the actual kingdom? Is it coming right now? And they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. They're just as impatient as we are. They're just as impatient as, as the Jews had always been and just as the Gentiles have always been. But they're asking him, are you going to establish the kingdom? So they know there's a spiritual element to this. Christ has taught that, but there's a physical element that's going to happen. Christ doesn't 
he doesn't negate the Old Testament. He fulfills it. Okay? So there isn't a single thing in the Old Testament that needs to be fulfilled that he will not fulfill. He does what he says he's going to do, and he says he's going to establish a kingdom. Uh, more evidence from Revelation, further ahead in our study, Revelation eleven 15. I've used this before. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was loud voices in heaven saying, and here's what they're saying as things were, are about to finish up in the tribulation. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Literally saying Christ is going to take back this world and reign here. This is a very literal thing. This is a physical reigning on earth. Okay, so as we study this, I'm not going to take the time. This is a great passage about us being heirs. We're not slaves anymore, but we're sons, we're daughters, we're heirs to the kingdom, adopted into the kingdom. I'm not going to spend time on this. I could spend way too much time on this, but we are ransomed, redeemed, and heir, tying in everything from last week. But let's go further with this. Romans 8, 16, and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, heirs. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Speaking of our glorification at, at the, uh, the rapture, but certainly what we are going to do with him in the kingdom. Speaking of being an heir and being glorified just like him. As he is, we will be. Both John and Paul both make reference to that. 2 Timothy 2, we have this very common passage about reigning with Christ. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is future stuff. It's now, but it's future. Eternal glory. His glory, that he, he doesn't share his glory, keep in mind, but he allows us to reign with him. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, which is what true believers do, we will reign with him. And then the non-believer will deny him, and then he denies them. So we see that we will reign with him if we're a true believer. 1 Corinthians 6, the saints will judge the world. And notice he also taught the context of this is, is getting into... Uh, legal confrontations with other believers and suing other believers, and that's the, we use that as a key passage for not doing that. But talking about that concept, why Paul says, hey, listen, remember what we are, what we will be someday. We're going to judge the world. We're going to judge angels. Now, that's an interesting thing to consider here for a moment, judging angels. The concept of, the, of judging an angel is pretty heavy duty. When you consider the loftiness of that, I mean, every time you see an angel in the Bible, they're pretty impressive. As a matter of fact, the first words that come out of an angel's mouth usually are, don't be afraid. Their people are terrified. They're more powerful than we are. At the moment, they're higher than we are. Someday, that will not be the case. Now, to set this up, just from Scripture, just give you an idea, angels, and I don't want to get into the angelology today, but angels seem to be a little bit territorial, even the fallen ones. Remember now, a third of the angels fell with Satan. We know Satan is roaming around the earth. We know territorially he's the god of this world, but there are demonic forces that seem to be territorial. Where, we, where do we get this? By the way, this passage in the NASB says the sons of Israel ESV brings in sons of God, which was in they, what, what was in the uh, Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls. But this is one of these potential key passages. 
when he divided mankind, speaking of after the Tower of Babel, he fixed the borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God. Uh, Michael Heiser, late Michael Heiser, who is kind of the authority behind the, the Hebrew um, study in Logo Software, who passed away recently, he wrote a book and actually did, I think, his doctor, one of his, doc, I, I don't know if it was his dissertation, on the doctoral dissertation, but it might have been on the Divine Council, making reference to this in defense of this. That's not the real defense. It's a possible passage that shows us that they are territorial. The one that's even better is from Daniel, and we're not going to go there. We just don't have time, but this is this classic line situation where Daniel has requested information once he wants clarification from a prophecy, and the Lord heard him. And most people think the angel that responds to him is Gabriel, but he is held, and you can study this on your, this is one of those things you can study this week, this angel, whoever it is that, that he sees, and most people think it's Gabriel, he has to kind of contend with these other angels, and they're called, one of them's called the Prince of Persia, and the other one that's coming is called the Prince of Greece, and Michael is mentioned as being the prince of Daniel's people, which is Israel. Seeming, seemingly, there's some territory involved in this. All right, why do I say all of this? This may or may not be true, by the way. This is just what we're gleaning from Scripture, that they may be territorial. We're going to judge angels. Okay, we're going to be higher than angels. Here's the argument here. When we reign with Christ, maybe, possibly, he will give us authority over the nations, as we see in Revelation 2.23, to the promises to the church. One of the promises to the church is giving authority over the nations. Notice Revelation 3, again, a promise to the church. Conquered will sit down on his throne with him, so reigning with him. It's possible we'll be territorial. So as we think back to that reward system, 1 Corinthians 3, the judgment seat of Christ, and what Christ does... What is the reward? Here's the theory. And again, this is just an idea that possibly, and this comes from Luke 19, turn to Luke 19, possibly we, you and I as believers, will be given territory to judge, to reign, to rule with Christ. It's possible. Okay, this is just possible. And where we get this concept of territory or area is from Luke 19. Turn to Luke 19 and we'll look at this very briefly. And, it, and it's going to be very briefly. We're not going to read the whole thing. I just want to show you where this comes from. Contextually and then what he says about this. Okay, now Luke 19, Jesus is telling a parable. This is near the, and this is right before the triumphal entry. This is probably on his way to Jerusalem. Look at the beginning of the setup for this parable. Notice how it's set up. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Why? Here's why. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Right? Same concept. Are you going to establish your kingdom right now? So as he often does, he uses parables to say the kingdom is like this. It's like this. And we're not going to read this whole parable, but I want you to notice what he does as a reward for the faithful servants. Now, within this parable, there's a lot of things to study. We could spend the whole time on this. But notice what the faithful servant that he gives these, these minas to. By the way, that's, that's a smaller denomination or smaller number than a talent. This is a little bit that he gives you, and then you do something with it. 
Let's pick this up in the middle. These good servants. The first came to him saying, Lord, your minna has made ten minas more. And he said, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Notice that. So in this parable, he's talking territory. He's talking reigning with him. And it's all about the kingdom. This parable's about the kingdom, what it's going to be like. Now keep in mind, he also mentions that the king has to go away for a while before he establishes the kingdom. I meant to mention that before. But at the beginning of this parable, the king goes away. He has to go away for a while, directly lining up with what's going on here. Then he comes back. Then he, the king establishes his kingdom. But he says, ten cities. Second came to him, verse 18, saying, Lord, your minute has made five minutes. And he said to him, and you, have, and you are to be over five cities. Then another said, Lord, here's your minute, which I kept and laid away in a handkerchief. I was afraid of you, and because you're a severe man, you take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you didn't sow. And he said to him, I condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I didn't sow. Why then did you put your money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you, to everyone who has more, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, speaking of the guys who, at the beginning, which we kind of skipped, I want to give him reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So this idea that there is, there's cities that potentially, this could be a literal type thing. Parables aren't literal, but they are giving us an example of what the kingdom could be like. Okay, so that's kind of that long explanation of, And I wanted to bring this up because it's going to be a long time before we get to the kingdom. That that's what we've already seen this reference to reigning with Christ a few times. And I thought that this makes sense to kind of cover this. Okay, it's not just us, by the way. Revelation 20, 4 through 6. 6 is a culmination of all of them. Who's the they will be priests of God and they will reign with him for a thousand years? It is us. But it's also those who have put their faith in Christ during the tribulation. Verse 4. We don't have time. You can look at it, but... We don't have time to go to it, but those are the, those who were slain for the name of Christ, these martyrs who are resurrected at the end of the tribulation, they get to reign as well. So it's not just us, and this could also include the, the, the Old Testament saints as well, and so we can talk about all of this. Now, before we jump away from this, this may be a struggle for you, because you might be thinking to yourself, I don't deserve this. You're right. You don't. I don't either. You might be thinking, how are we going to do this? This doesn't make sense. We're glorified and we're dealing with these sinful humans. We know how they are. We used to be one of them. I don't want to be involved in this. And it may be a struggle mentally. Erwin Lutzer's book, um, The King is Coming, he has a great line about this, a great quote. He says, are you troubled when you realize that in the millennial kingdom, those who have their eternal resurrected bodies will be ruling over people who still have their earthly bodies? This interaction between the two kinds of people should not trouble us. After his resurrection, Jesus was able to interact with his disciples who were fallen and, and sinful just like us. And he's perfect. And although in a glorified body, he ate fish with them. And we have examples of that. So while it is difficult for us to imagine what life will be like in an entirely different sphere, we can trust the promise of God. We will rule with Christ in the kingdom and apparently intermingle with those who will still struggle with the challenges of an earthly existence. So my answer is trust the Lord. How is this all going to work out? I don't know. But he says it, so you can book it. 
It's going to happen. You will reign with Christ, and it will be perfect. Okay, enough said about that. Back to Revelation 5. This is where it gets interesting. Verse 11, this is where things begin to culminate. We're going to see angels involved in this, and they know the score too. It isn't just these living creatures, whatever type of angelic being that is. It isn't just the church. We now have angels joining in this worship. And here's what it says in Revelation 5.11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice. We'll get to what they're going to say here in just a moment. Let's deal with the myriads and myriads, thousands of thousands. Here's kind of my... I, I, kind of gathered this from a variety of different commentaries, what this means. The double use refers to an impossibly impressive number. The number is, of talking about these angels, the number is to express an amount that is beyond calculation. In Greek, this same expression can be translated innumerable. This is an extravagant way of saying that the number is beyond measure. There is a lot of angels. How many? I don't know. More than I can number. So you got the church there. How many? Thousands, millions. How many have, has Christ saved over the years? When is Christ going to return? We don't know. How many more believers will be added to the fold? We don't know. How, it's just a huge scene. Now, if you remember back several weeks when we first established that this, this document is the title deed, remember that the more witnesses, the more important it is. So this is more witnesses to a document um, exchange than ever in human history. This is the biggest one. So it's a huge number of angels, and it's a very cool scene. Uh, Wearsby helps us out with this. The elders sing. Okay, These angels that come in, notice it says, they say. Okay, I want you to notice that. We've been singing, right? And we do that. Christians sing. Humans sing. It's part of what we do to react and to worship. It's built into us. But that's not what we see out of the angels. It says that they say it. The elders sing, but the angelic creatures say with a loud voice, there's no evidence in the Bible that angels sing. Now, they may. Okay? There's one example. He actually quotes Job 38 where there is, a sing, there is singing there, but it does say that the angels, the sons of God, say it or shout it. It states that the creation, the sons of God, shouted for joy. This Christmas angels, which we always think sing. The Bible doesn't say that. They praise God by saying, not singing. The multitudes of angels in heaven joined their voices in a great shout of praise when the Lamb took the scroll, but they didn't sing. Singing is a privilege reserved for the saints of God who experienced the joy of salvation. Remember, that's what we're singing about, isn't it? And we're singing about he ransomed us, he redeemed us, he paid the price. We experienced that. The angels didn't. They didn't. That's an interesting thing. There are many things angels can do that saints cannot, but an angel cannot experience salvation nor can he sing with the saints the praises of the Lamb. So we know what it's like to be a sinner saved by grace. If you're in Christ, you know what that's like. And there's nothing like it, is it? And it, and it does, when you stop and think about it, it does cause you to want to worship. And it causes you to want to do what we're going to do here. Thanks to Isaiah and his timing, God's timing, I guess. And we're going to sing about, is he worthy today? And, and it's going to mean something to you because it happened to you. It happened to you. What Christ did happened to you, but not to angels. Turn to 1 Peter 1. Let me show you why this is kind of interesting. 1 Peter 1. And then we'll get to what they say and sing, because it's, it's a repeat of what we've already studied. 1 Peter 1. Let's look at these angels and why they're so 
fascinated by this and why they don't experience it like we do. So Peter, talking about salvation, he says this, 1 Peter 1, verse 10, concerning this salvation, the gospel, what saves you, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The Old Testament prophets knew Jesus was coming. Boy, when Isaiah wrote Isaiah 53, it had to confuse him. He didn't really understand. How could the Messiah die? How could all this happen? They didn't know, but they just wrote down what they were told to write down. They were doing that for our benefit as we, as we look at it now. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, we believers in this age, in the church age, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven. Notice it says at the end of this, just a little line, things into which angels long to look. They'd love to know about that. Because however this works, angels cannot be redeemed. The angels that didn't fall will stay unfallen. The angels that fell are going to stay fallen. How, why, I I don't know. We were made in God's image, and we have this capacity, and Christ decided in his sovereignty that he was going to redeem us. Angels that are fallen are going to stay that way. And and I I can't stand up here and give you a good reason. That's just the way it is. And so angels long to look into this. How is it that they... And they know, by the way, I don't think they're stupid. They know we're going to reign over them. They know we're going to judge them. How is that possible? And I think it's something that's interesting to them. Anyway, side note on that, they don't sing because they haven't experienced it. They say it because they know it's true, by the way. They know it's true. They say it and they say it loud, but they don't sing it. We sing it. It's kind of an interesting side note. All right, let's get to the real crux of the matter in the last 10 minutes. Worthy is the lamb. This is what they say. What do they say with a loud voice? They say, worthy is the lamb. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. They know the score. They know who's worthy. They know who's holding that deed. They know what's going to happen. And they know he's worthy. It's a very important element to see that they are in conjunction, in unison with us. They believe what they are, are seeing and what they are saying. And I love this. I picked this up from another commentary, uh, and I'll I'll get Wearsby one more time here. But there's a commentary that really breaks this down for us, the unity of this. But Wearsby says this, Christ alone is worthy of praise. It's interesting to contrast the doxology, and I love this, follow this, with the earthly life of Christ. So back to the doxology. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Okay, keep that in mind. Notice what Wearsby says about this. It's interesting to contrast this doxology with the earthly life of Christ. His enemies said he was worthy of death, but angels say he is worthy of praise. Men accused him of working by the power of Satan, but the angels say he is worthy of power. He became poor for our sakes, 2 Corinthians 8 and, of course, Philippians 2, but he deserved all the riches. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to sinful man, 1 Corinthians 1, but it is wisdom to the angels. On earth, Jesus was crucified in weakness, but in heaven he is lauded for his power. Dishonored on earth, he is honored in glory. Made a curse on the cross, he is today both the recipient and the bestower of blessing. It's a reversal. You see how this is the apex? This, this is the, 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 the tipping point of all biblical history. This has to be the case where everything is reversed. Now, I know it's a, it's a long shot, but if you can think back to the very first week I taught, it's a long time ago now, 10 weeks, 11 weeks, we talked about the things that, 
that why Jesus was coming back, the reasons why Jesus had to come back, and this was one of them. He's got to reverse the curse, finish this. Certainly, what he did on the cross was the most important thing, but he is going to finish this job, and it's going to be done because he said so. So as we go forward in this, 13 and 14, again, this is some repetition, but repetition in the Bible means it's important. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, we've heard this before, by the way, the whole planet, these are the poles that we're dealing with, on heaven and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Notice the joining. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is, is on Christ. Remember, we had that symbolism from two weeks ago. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the, fel- the elders fell down and worshiped. So reiterating yet again in unison that this is true. I love this, and I picked this up, this, uh, another commentary that I came across Power, honor, glory. The same three which were earlier given to the Father in worship. This is important. I want you to connect what we've been hearing in in hour two, what Pastor has been talking about with the Trinity, the triunity of God. Put all this together. That's God's sovereignty, how he works these things out. Anyway, these same three things were given to Creator God in chapter four. It's been a while, but we covered him, and we get the Redeemer in chapter five. They are one. These same words are given to the Lamb. This is cool. Yet Scripture records that God will not give his glory to another. Isaiah 42. Jesus taught that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. We've looked at these things throughout John. Thus he prayed, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Although we haven't got to John 17, we've all referenced The high priestly prayer, so many times, we've covered that verse as well. What greater statement of divinity could Jesus have made than this? Therefore, it is proper to worship the Son, even as it is proper to worship the Father. For there has been shown, here has been shown that the Father and the Son receive the same worship. He doesn't share glory with anyone, which means he's one with the Son. And the Holy Spirit's involved in this, remember, because of the symbolism that we saw earlier And he doesn't share anything, so they must be one. Same idea. Indeed, Jesus frequently received worship at his first coming. Multiple passages. So once again, we see that Jesus is God. So important. The Trinity is such an important concept to understand here, and it's seen very clearly here. And remember, this is all culminating because of Romans 8. And we looked at this last week, but just to remind you of what we looked at last week. The creation waits with eager longing for this moment, the moment we're looking at here, where this is about to initiate, where things are going to turn, where the kingdom of the world is going to become the kingdom of God. Back to verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, until the glorification of the sons, the adoption, the full redemption, the whole plan, all of it. And here's what MacArthur has to say about this, and we'll end here. Somebody will inevitably say, it's kind of a funny line, what does that include? What, what, what does what include? Going back to this, all creation, heaven, earth, under the earth, the sea, that is in them saying, all that. What does that include? He says this, what does this include? It includes every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things that end them. Do you want me to explain that? 
<laughs> why would I explain an absolutely all-inclusive statement? That's a good way to write a commentary. But he says, why would I explain all this? It's clear. There's nothing left out. A better question for them to ask is this. What doesn't that include? And the answer is nothing. So who is going to know that he is God? Everything. Everything. Who's going to know that he's worthy? Everything. Who's going to know who's in charge? Everything. You realize the people who reject him during the tribulation and the judgments are coming, we'll get to this later, they know it's the lamb. They know. They know. The demons know. They all know. And he says this, I'm sure it's everything from angels and men to frogs and gophers, <laughs> which is a funny thing. I say frogs because they're in the water and gophers because they're under the earth. Every being in the whole creation has been groaning, Romans 8 says, and now it explodes in praise. Awesome. The whole created universe is now on the brink of its anticipated glory. So you can see how this is the tipping point right here, right now. Now, all of that said, and I've got one minute, all of that said, we've spent seven weeks on chapter 4 and chapter 7, establishing that Jesus is creator God, so he's, he's, it is Jesus, but the Father and Jesus, creator God. God is also the redeemer, the, the one who ransomed you, that paid the price. These two things combined and everything in between about God, all the characteristics that Dave Krumbacher went through with us for 13 weeks, all those characteristics are true about God, and they make him worthy to do what chapter 6 is about to show us. They make, him, they make him the only one worthy to do it. He's worthy of praise, but he has the right to do what's about to happen that has to happen. He's righteous, and he's just, and he's loving, and he's perfect, and he does exactly what he says he's going to do. The promises will be fulfilled, and next week we'll begin to look at these 21 different judgments that are coming on the earth, and we'll do that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this time that we've had in your word. It's very clear that you've established why you're worthy of this, why you have the right. You are our creator, you're our sustainer, you're our redeemer, and you're our Lord. We thank you that you've given us this opportunity to get a glimpse into this future moment that we'll all be in, all that are in Christ in this, in this room. But there may be still some here who have not put their faith in your son. Some of them that you're moving in their hearts right now, you're drawing them to yourself. I pray that they surrender, they repent, they believe, and that by grace through faith in Jesus alone, they can be saved and they can join in this. And they can be part of this future glory. They can be part of the, those sons that reign. They can be part of this, this choir that sings. And they can see the future history, the tipping point of history, and your son making all things new, all things right. They can see that with their own eyes in glorified form. I pray that as you move in their hearts that they surrender and believe, they repent and believe on his name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.